too, e sure, his demonstrations were invariably accurate, and showed him to possess the instinct of a pilot, whatever his lack of training, he did not enjoy the ocean and was always delighted to see land, in 1865 an Eskimo dog was domiciled on the bark Golden Gate, on her voyage from Norton Sound to Kamchatka, he ran in all parts of the vessel, and made himself agreeable to everyone on board, at Petropavlovsk Kamchadale dog became a passenger for San Francisco, immediately on being loosed he took possession aft and drove the Eskimo forward, during the whole passage he retained his place on the quarter deck and in the cabin, occasionally he went forward for a promenade, but he never allowed the other dog to go abaft the mainmast, the Eskimo endeavored to establish amicable relations, but the Kamchadale rejected all friendly overtures, I heard of a dog on one of the Honolulu packets that took his turn at duty with the regularity of a sailor, coming on deck when his watch was called and retiring with it to the forecastle. when the sails flapped from any cause and the clouds indicated a sudden shower, the dog gave warning with a bark on the sea, I ventured to ask my informant if the animal stood the dog watch, but the question did not receive a definite answer, what a wonderful thing is the science of navigation, one measures the sun's height at meridian, looks at a chronometer, consults a book of mystical figures, makes a little slate work like a schoolboy's problem, and he knows his position at sea. 12 o'clock. If there be neither fog nor cloud, is the most important hour of a nautical day. A few minutes before noon the captain is on deck with his quadrant. The first officer is similarly provided, as he is supposed to keep a log and practice book of his own. Ambitious students of navigation are sure to appear at that time. On the right we turned out for instruments, with twice as many hands to hold them. A minute before twelve, conic array on mace. Eight bells, eight bells, sir. The four instruments are briefly fixed on the sun and the horizon. The readings of the scale are noted, and the quartet descend to the practice of mathematics. A few minutes later we have the result. Latitude 52 degrees 8 north. Longitude 161 degrees 14 east. Distance in last 24 hours 246 miles. The chart is unrolled, and a few measurements with dividers, rule and pencil, and in the registry of our exact position, and like the countryman on Broadway or a doubting politician the day before election, we do know where we are. The compass, the chronometer, the quadrant, what would be the watery world without them? On the 24th of July we were just a month at sea. In all that time we had spoken no ship nor had any glimpse of land, unless I accept a trifle in a flower pot. The captain made his reckoning at noon, and added to the reading, 75 miles from the entrance of Avicha Bay. We ought to see land before sunset. About four in the afternoon we discovered the coast just where the captain said we should find it. The mountains that serve to guide one toward Avicha Bay were exactly in the direction marked on our chart. To all appearances we were not a furlong from our estimated position. How easily may the navigator's art appear like magic to the ignorant and superstitious. The breeze was light, and we stood in very slowly toward the shore. By sunset we could see the full outline of the coast of Kamchatka for a distance of 50 or 60 miles. The general coastline formed the concavity of a small arc of a circle, as it was too late to enter before dark, and we did not expect the light would be burning. We furled all our sails and lay to until morning. By daybreak we were under steam, and at five o'clock I came on deck to make my first acquaintance with Asia. We were about twenty miles from the shore, 
and the general appearance of the land reminded me of the Rocky Mountains from Denver or the Sierra Nevadas from the vicinity of Stockton. On the north of the horizon was a group of four or five mountains, while directly in front there were three separate peaks, of which one was volcanic. Most of these mountains were conical and sharp, and although it was July, nearly every summit was covered with snow. Between and among these high peaks there were many smaller mountains, but no less steep and pointed, as one sees it from the ocean. Kamchatka appears more like a desolate than a habitable country. It requires very good eyesight to discover the entrance of Abacha Bay at a distance of 8 or 10 miles, but the landmarks are of such excellent character that one can approach without hesitation. The passage is more than a mile wide. Guarding it on the right is a hill nearly 300 feet high, and standing almost perpendicular above the water. At the left is a rock of lesser height, terminating a tongue or ridge of land. On the hill is a lighthouse and signal station with a flagstaff. Formerly the light was only exhibited when a ship was expected or seen, but in 1866, orders were given for its maintenance every night during the summer months. Years ago, on the coast of New Hampshire, a man from the interior was appointed light keeper. The day he assumed his position was his first on the seashore. Very soon there were complaints that his lights did not burn after midnight. On being called to account by his superior, he explained, well, I thought all the ships ought to be in by midnight, and I wanted to save the isle. Chapter III. As one leaves the Pacific and enters Avicha Bay he passes high rocks and cliffs, washed at their base by the waves, the loud-sounding ocean working steadily against the solid walls, has worn caverns and dark passages, haunted by thousands of screaming and fluttering seabirds. The bay is circular and about 20 miles in diameter, except at the place of entrance it is enclosed with hills and mountains that give it the appearance of a highland lake. All over it there is excellent anchorage for ships of every class, while around its sides are several little harbors, like miniature copies of the bay. At Petropavlovsk we hope to find the Russian ship of war, Variag, and the bar Clara Bell, which sailed from San Francisco six weeks before us, as we entered the bay. All eyes were turned toward the little harbor. There is the Russian, said three or four voices at once, as the tall masts aired wide spars of a corvette came in sight. The Clara Bell, the Clara Bell member it's a brig, was our exclamation at the appearance of a vessel behind the very act. There's another, a bark certainly, member it's a brig, too, uttered the colonel with an emphasis of disgust. Evidently his bark was on the sea. Rounding the shoal we moved toward the fort. The Russian corvette greeting us with, Hail Columbia, out of compliment to our nationality. We carried the American flag at the quarter and the Russian naval ensign at the fore as a courtesy to the ship that awaited us. As we cast anchor just outside the little inner harbor, the Russian band continued playing Hail Columbia, but our engineer played the mischief with the music by letting off steam. As soon as we were at rest a boat from the corvette touched our side, and a subordinate officer announced that his captain would speedily visit us. Very soon came the captain of the port or collector of customs, and after him the American merchants residing in the town. Our gangway which we closed at San Francisco was now opened, and we once more communicated with the world. Petropavlovsk port of St. Peter and Paul is situated in lap. 53 degrees 1 north, long, 158 degrees 43 east, and is the principal place in Kamchatka. It stands on the side of a hill sloping into the northern shore of Abacha Bay, or rather into a little harbor opening into the bay. 
Fronting this harbor is a long peninsula that hides the town from all parts of the bay except those near the sea. The harbor is well sheltered from winds and furnishes excellent anchorage. It is divided into an inner and an outer harbor by means of a sand spit that extends from the mainland toward the peninsula, leaving an opening about 300 yards in width. The inner harbor is a neat little basin about a thousand yards in diameter and nearly circular in shape. Some of the mountains that serve as landmarks to the approaching mariner are visible from the town, and others can be seen by climbing the hills in the vicinity. Wuluchinsky is to the southward and not volcanic, while Avicha and Koryansky, to the north and east, were smoking with a dignified air, like a pair of Turks after a champagne supper. Eruptions of these volcanoes occur every few years, and during the most violent ones ashes and stones are thrown to a considerable distance. Captain Kim witnessed an eruption of Avicha in 1779, and says that stones fell at Petropavlovsk, 25 miles away, and the ashes covered the deck of his ship. Mr. Pierce, an old resident of Kamchatka, gave me a graphic description of an eruption in 1861. It was preceded by an earthquake which overturned crockery on the tables, and demolished several ovens. For a week or more earthquakes of a less violent character occurred hourly. Besides the very ag we found in port the Russian brig Purga and the Prussian brig Danzig, the latter having an American captain, crew, hull, masts, and rigging, two old hulks were rotting in the mud, and an insulworthy schooner lay on the beach with one side turned upward as if in agony. There be land rats and water rats, according to Shakespeare. Some of the latter dwelt in this bluff-bound schooner and peered curiously from the crevices in her sides. The majority of our visitors made their calls very brief. After their departure, I went on shore with Mr. Hunter, an American resident of Petropavlovsk. In every house I visited I was pressed to take Petnots at Kopla 15 drops. The universal name there for something stimulating. The drops might be American whiskey, French brandy, Dutch gin, or Russian vodka. David Crockett said a true gentleman is one who turns his back while you pour whiskey into your tumbler. The etiquette of Kamchatka does not permit the host to count the drops taken by his guest. Take a log village in the backwoods of Michigan or Minnesota, and transport it to a quiet spot by a well-sheltered harbor of Lilliputian size. Cover the roofs of some buildings with iron, shingles or boards from other regions. Cover the balance with thatch of long grass, and erect chimneys that just peer above the ridge poles. Scatter these buildings on a hillside next to water, arrange three-fourths of them in a single street, and leave the rest to drop wherever they like. Of course those in the higgledy-piggledy position must be of the poorest class, but you can make a few exceptions. Whitewash the inner walls of half the buildings, and use paper or cloth to hide the nakedness of the other half. This will make a fair counterfeit of Petropavlovsk. Inside each house place a brick stove or oven, four or five feet square and six feet high. Locate this stove to present a side to each of two or three rooms. In each side make an aperture two inches square that can be opened or closed at will. The amount of heat to warm the rooms is regulated by means of the apertures. Furnish the houses with plain chairs, tables, and an occasional but rare piano. Make the doors very low and the entries narrow. Put a picture of a saint in the principal room of every house. And adorn the walls with a few engravings. Make a garden near each house and let a few miscellaneous gardens cling to the hillside and strive to climb it. Don't forget to build a church, or you will fail to represent a Russian town. Petropavlovsk has no vehicle of any kind except a single hand cart. Consequently the street is not dashed with wheel ruts.
we were invited to assist at a wedding that happened in the evening after our arrival. The ceremony was to begin at five o'clock, and was a double affair, two sisters being the brides. A Russian wedding requires a master of ceremonies to look after the affair from beginning to end. I was told it was the custom in Siberia but not in European Russia for this person to pay all expenses of the wedding, including the indispensable dinner and its fixtures. Such a position is not to be desired by a man of limited cash, especially if the leading characters are inclined to extravagance. Think of being the conductor of a diamond wedding in New York or Boston, and then paying the bills. The steward of the Variag told me he was invited to conduct a wedding shortly after his arrival at Petropavlovsk, thinking it an honor of which he would hereafter be proud. He accepted the invitation. Much to his surprise on the next day he was required to pay the cost of the entertainment. The master of ceremonies of the wedding under consideration was Mr. Philip Hughes, a Russian gentleman engaged in the fur trade. The father of the brides was his customer, and doubtless the cost of the wedding was made up in subsequent dealings. As the party emerged from the house and moved toward the church, I could see that Philip Hughes was the central figure. He had a bride on each arm and each bride was clinging to her prospective husband. The women were in white and the men in holiday dress. Behind the front rank were a dozen or more groomsmen and bridesmaids. Behind these were the members of the families and the invited relatives, so that the cortege stretched to a considerable length. Each of the groomsmen wore a bow of colored ribbon on his left arm and a smaller one in the buttonhole. The children of the families quite a troop of juveniles brought up the rear. The church is of logs, like the other buildings. It is old, and painted, and shaped like a cross, lacking one of the arms. The doors are large and clumsy, and the entrance is through a vestibule or hall. The roof had been recently painted a brilliant red at the expense of the Variag's officers. On the inside, the church has an antiquated appearance, but presents such an air of solidity as if inviting the earthquakes to come and see it. There were no seats in the building, nor are there seats of any kind in the edifices of the same character in any part of Russia. It is the theory of the Eastern Church that all are equal before God, in His service. No distinction is made, autocrat and subject, noble and peasant, stand or kneel in the same manner while worshipping at His altars. As we entered, we found the wedding party standing in the center of the church, the spectators were a group nearer the door, the ladies occupying the front, with the thermometer at 72. I found the upright position a fatiguing one and would have been glad to send for a camp stool. Colonel Bulkley had undertaken to escort a lady, and as he stood in a conspicuous place, his uniform buttoned to the very chin and the perspiration pouring from his face, the ceremony appeared to have little charm for him. The service began under the direction of two priests, each dressed in a long robe extending to his feet, and wearing a chapeau like a bell-crowned hat without a brim. The short one, said a friend near me, pointing to a little, round, that, oily man of God, will get very drunk when he has the opportunity, watch him tonight and see how he leaves the dinner party, priests of the Greek church wear their hair very long, frequently below the shoulders, and parted in the middle, and do not shave the beard, and like those of the Catholic church, they marry and have homes and families, engaging in secular occupations which do not interfere with their religious duties, during the evening after the wedding, I was introduced to, the Pope's wife, and learned that Russian priests are called popes, as the only pope then familiar to my thoughts is considered very much a bachelor. I was rather taken aback at this bit of information. The drink-loving priest was head of a goodly-sized family, 
and resided in a comfortable and well-furnished dwelling. At the wedding there was much recitation by the priests, reading from the ritual of the church, swinging of censers, singing by the chorus of male voices, chanting and intonation, and responses by the victims. There were frequent signs of the cross with bowing or kneeling. A ring was used, and afterwards two crowns were held over the heads of the bride and bridegroom. The fatigue of holding these crowns was considerable, and required that those who performed the service should be relieved once by other bridesmen. After a time the crowns were placed on the heads they had been held over. Wearing these crowns and preceded by the priests, the pair walked three times round the altar in memory of the Holy Trinity, while a portion of the service was chanted. Then the crowns were removed and kissed by each of the marrying pair, the bridegroom first performing the osculation. A cup of water was held by the priest, first to the bridegroom and then to the bride, each of whom drank a small portion. After this the first couple retired to a little chapel and the second passed through the ordeal. The preliminary ceremony occupied about 20 minutes, and the same time was consumed by each couple. There is no divorce in Russia, so that the union was one for life till death. Before the parties left the church they received congratulations. There was much handshaking, and among the women there were decorous kisses. Our party regretted that the custom of bride kissing as practiced in America does not prevail in Kamchatka. When the affair was ended, the whole cortege returned to the house whence it came, the children carrying pictures of the Virgin and Saints, and holding lighted candles before them. The employment of lamps and tapers is universal in the Russian churches, the little flame being a representation of spiritual existence and a symbol of the continued life of the soul. The Russians have adapted this idea so completely that there is no marriage, betrothal, consecration, or burial. In fact no religious ceremony whatever without the use of lamp or taper. In the house of every adherent to the Orthodox Russian faith there is a picture of the Virgin or a saint, sometimes holy pictures are in every room of the house. I have seen them in the cabins of steamboats, and in tents and other temporary structures. No Russian enters a dwelling, however humble, without removing his hat, out of respect to the holy pictures, and this custom extends to shops, hotels, in fact to every place where people dwell or transact business. During the earlier part of my travels in Russia, I was unaware of this custom, and fear that I sometimes offended it. I have been told that superstitious thieves hang veils or kerchiefs before the picture in rooms where they depredate. Enthusiastic lovers occasionally observe the same precaution, only the eyes of the image need be covered, and secrecy may be obtained by turning the picture to the wall. The evening began with a reception and congratulations to the married couples. Then we had tea and cakes, and then came the dinner. The party was like the African giant imported into ships, for it was found impossible to crowd all the guests into one house. Tables were set into houses and in the open yard between them. The Russians have a custom of taking a little lunch just before they begin dinner. This lunch is upon a side table in the dining room, and consists of cordial, spirits or bippers with morsels of herring, caviar, and dried meat or fish. It performs the same office as the American cocktail, but is oftener taken, is more popular and more respectable. After the lunch we sat down to dinner. Fish formed the first course and soup the second. Then we had roast beef and vegetables, followed by veal cutlets. The feast closed with cake and jelly, and was thoroughly washed down with a dozen kinds of beverages that cheer and inebriate. The fat priest was at table and took his lunch early. His first course was a glass of something liquid, 
and he drank a dozen times before the soup was brought. Early in the dinner I saw him gesturing toward me. He wants to take a glass with you, said someone at my side. I poured out some wine, and after a little trouble in touching glasses we drank each other's health. Not five minutes later he repeated his gestures. To satisfy him I filled a glass with sherry, as there was no champagne handy at the moment, and again went through the clinking process. As my glass was large I put it down after sipping a few drops, but the old fellow objected, draining and inverting his glass. He held it as one might suspend a rat by the tail, and motioned me to do the same. Luckily he soon after conceived a fondness for one of the rights officers, and the twain fell to drinking. The officer, assisted by three men, went on board late at night, and was reported attempting to wash his face in a tar bucket and dry it with a chain cable. About midnight the priest was taken home on a shutter. There were toasts in a large number, with a great deal of cheering, drinking, and smoking. About ten o'clock the dinner ended, and arrangements were made for a dance. Dancing was not among my accomplishments, and I retired to the ship, satisfied that on my first day in Asia I had been treated very kindly and very often. For two days more the wedding festivities continued, etiquette requiring the parties to visit all who attended the dinner. On the third day the hilarity ceased, and the happy couples were left to enjoy the honeymoon with its promise of matrimonial bliss. May they have many years of it. Chapter IV. The name of Kamchatka is generally associated with snowfields, glaciers, frozen mountains, and ice-bound shores. Its winters are long and severe, snow falls to a great depth, and ice attains a thickness proportion to the climate. But the summers, though short, are sufficiently hot to make up for the cold of winter. Vegetation is wonderfully rapid. The grasses, trees and plants growing as much in a hundred days as in six months of a New England summer. Hardly has the snow disappeared before the trees put forth their buds and blossoms, and the hillsides are in all the verdure of an American spring. Men tell me they have seen in a single week the snows disappear, ice break in the streams, the grass spring up, and the trees beginning to bud. Nature adapts herself to all her conditions. In the Arctic as in the torrid zone she fixes her compensations and makes her laws for the best good of her children. It was midsummer when we reached Kamchatka and the heat was like that of August in Richmond or Baltimore. The thermometer ranged from 65 to 80. Long walks on land were out of question, unless one possessed the power of a salamander. The shore of the bay was the best place for a promenade, and we amused ourselves watching the salmon fishers at work. Salmon form the principal food of the Kimchadales and their dogs. The fishing season in Abitcha Bay lasts about six weeks, and at its close the salmon leave the bay and ascend the streams where they are caught by the interior natives. In the bay they are taken in seines dragged along the shore, and the number of fish caught annually is almost beyond computation. Some years ago the fishery failed, and more than half the dogs in Kamchatka starved. The following year there was a bountiful supply, which the priests of Petropavlovsk commemorated by erecting a cross near the entrance of the harbor. The supply is always larger after a scarcity than in ordinary seasons. The fish designed for preservation are split and dried in the sun. The odor of a fish-drying establishment reminded me of the smells in certain quarters of New York in summer, or of Cairo, Illinois. After an unusual flood has subsided, one of our officers said he counted 320 distinct and different smells in walking half a mile. In 1865 one of the merchants started the enterprise of curing salmon for the Sandwich Island market. He told me he paid three rubles 
about three greenback dollars, a hundred in number for the fresh fish, delivered at his establishment. Evidently he found the speculation profitable, as he repeated it the following year. When the salmon ascend the rivers they furnish food to men and animals. The natives catch them in nets and with spears, while dogs, bears, and wolves use their teeth in fishing. Bears are expert in this amusement, and where their game is plenty they eat only the heads and backs. The fish are very abundant in the rivers, and no great skill is required in their capture. Men with an air of veracity told me they had seen streams in the interior of Kamchatka so filled with salmon that one could cross on them as on a corduroy bridge. The story has a piscatorial sound, but it may be true. House gardening on a limited scale is the principal agriculture of Kamchatka. Fifty years ago, Admiral Record introduced the cultivation of rye, wheat, and barley with considerable success, but the inhabitants do not take kindly to it. The government brings rye flour from the Amur River and sells it to the people at cost, and in case of distress it issues rations from its magazines. When I asked why there was no culture of grain in Kamchatka, they replied, what is the necessity of it? We can buy it at cost of the government, and need not trouble ourselves about making our own flour. There is not a sawmill on the peninsula. Boards and planks are cut by hand or brought from California. I slept two nights in a room sealed with redwood and pine from San Francisco. On my second evening in Asia I passed several hours at the governor's house. The party talked, smoked, and drank tea until midnight, and then closed the entertainment with a substantial supper. An interesting and novel feature of the affair was the Russian manner of making tea. The infusion had a better flavor than any I had previously drank. This is due partly to the superior quality of the leaf and partly to the manner of its preparation. The samovar or tiara is an indispensable article in a Russian household, and is found in nearly every dwelling from the Baltic to Bering Sea. Samovar comes from two Greek words, meaning to boil itself. The article is nothing but a portable furnace, a brazen urn with a cylinder two or three inches in diameter passing through it from top to bottom, the cylinder being filled with coals. The water in the urn is quickly heated and remains boiling hot as long as the fire continues. An imperial order abolishing samovars throughout all the rushes, would produce more sorrow and indignation than the expulsion of roast beef from the English bill of fare. The number of cups it will contain is the measure of a samovar. Teapots are of porcelain or earthenware. The teapot is rinsed and warmed with hot water before receiving the dry leaf. Boiling water is poured upon the tea, and when the pot is full it is placed on the top of the samovar. There it is kept hot but not boiled, and in five or six minutes the tea is ready. Cups and saucers are not employed by the Russians, but tumblers are generally used for tea drinking, and in the best houses, where it can be afforded, they are held in silver sockets like those in soda shops. Only low sugar is used in sweetening tea. When lemons can be had they are employed to give flavor. A thin slice, neither rolled nor pressed, being floated on the surface of the tea. The Russians take tea in the morning, after dinner, after lunch, before bedtime, in the evening, at odd intervals in the day or night, and they drink a great deal of it between drinks. In rambling about Petropavlovsk I found the hills covered with luxuriant grass, sometimes reaching to my knees. Two or three miles inland the grass was waist high on ground covered with snow six weeks before. Among the flowers I recognized the violet and larkspur, the former in great abundance. Earlier in the summer the hills were literally carpeted with flowers, 
I could not learn that any skilled botanist had ever visited Kamchatka and classified its flora. Among the arboreal productions the alder and birch wood are the most numerous. Pine, larch, and spruce grow on the Kamchatka River, and the timber from them is brought to Avicha from the mouth of that stream. The commercial value of Kamchatka is entirely in its fur trade. The peninsula has no agricultural, manufacturing, or mining interest, and were it not for the animals that lend their skins to keep us warm, the merchant would find no charms in that region. The fur coming from Kamchatka was the cause of the Russian discovery and conquest. For many years the trade was conducted by individual merchants from Siberia. The Russian-American company attempted to control it early in the present century, and drove many competitors from the fields. It received the most determined opposition from American merchants, and in 1860 it abandoned Petropavlovsk, its business there being profitless. In 1866 I found the fur trade of Kamchatka in the control of three merchants, W.H. Boardman, of Boston, J.W. Flugger, of Hamburg, and Alexander Philippus, of St. Petersburg. All of them had houses in Petropavlovsk, and each had from one to half a dozen agencies or branches elsewhere. To judge by appearances, Mr. Boardman had the lion's share of the trade. This gentleman's father began the Northwest traffic sometime in the last century, and left it as an inheritance about 1828. His son continued the business until bought off by the Hudson Bay Company, when he turned his attention to Kamchatka. Personally he has never visited the Pacific Ocean. Mr. Flugger had been only two years in Kamchatka, and was doing a miscellaneous business. Boardman's agent confined himself to the fur trade, but Flugger was up to anything. He salted salmon for market, sent a schooner every year into the Arctic Ocean for walrus teeth and mammoth tusks, bought furs, sold goods, kept a dog team, was attentive to the ladies, and would have run for Congress had it been possible. He had in his store about half a quart of walrus teeth piled against a back entrance like stovewood. Philippus was a roving blade. He kept an agent at Petropavlovsk and came there in person once a year. In February he left St. Petersburg for London, whence he took the Red Sea route to Japan. There he chartered a brig to visit Kamchatka and land him at Ayan, on the Okhotsk Sea. From Ayan he went to Yakutsk, and from that place through Irkutsk to St. Petersburg, where he arrived about 350 days after his departure. I met him in the Russian capital just as he had completed the sixth journey of this kind and was about to commence the seventh. If he were a Jew he should be called the Wandering Jew. Trade is conducted on the barter principle. Furs being low and goods high. The risks are great. Transport is costly. And money is a long time invested before it returns. The palmy days of the fur trade are over. The product has greatly diminished. And competition has reduced the percentage of profit on the little that remains. There was a